Romania, 1940s. When I was still living behind the Iron Curtain, I had met a Russian captain. He loved God. He longed after God. But he had never seen a Bible. He had never attended religious services. He had no religious education, but he loved God without the slightest knowledge of him. I read to him the Sermon on the Mount and the parables of Jesus. And after hearing them, he danced around the room in a rapturous joy, proclaiming, What a wonderful beauty! How could I have lived without knowing the Christ? It was for the first time that I saw someone jubilating in Christ. Then I made a mistake. I read to him the passion and crucifixion of Christ without having prepared him for this. He had not as expected it. When he heard how Christ was beaten, how he was crucified, and that in the end he died, he fell in an armchair and began to weep bitterly. He had believed in a Savior, and now his Savior was dead. I looked at him and was ashamed that I was a, a, called myself a Christian and a pastor, a teacher of others. I had never shared the sufferings of Christ as this Russian officer now shared them. Looking at him was, for me, like seeing Mary Magdalene weeping at the foot of the cross or at the empty tomb. Then I read to him the story of the resurrection. And when he heard this wonderful news, the Savior arose from the tomb. He slapped his knees and shouted for joy, He is alive! He's alive! Again, he danced around the room, overwhelmed with happiness. And I said to him, Let's pray. He fell on his knees with me together there. He did not know our holy phrases, his words of prayer were, oh God, what a fine chap you are. If I were you and you were me, I would never have forgiven you your sins. But you are really a very nice chap. I love you with all my heart. I think that all the angels in heaven stopped what they were doing to listen to this sublime prayer from this Russian officer. When this man received Christ, he knew that he would immediately lose his position as an officer, that prison and perhaps even death in jail would almost surely follow. He gladly paid the price. He was ready to lose everything. Let's pray. Father, we're gathered here under your word. And Lord, we want to we submit to it as we just sang and we prayed in a song. Open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive you again that we be strengthened by your grace today in our hearts. Would you come and meet us in a special way? Gather us together in unity as your church under your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The original heads of the church here in verse 7 that where we pick up um, were passing away. Many had already died. And the church um, is rightful to believe that they were probably teetering in their trust to know, is God going to provide for what we need next? Um, You know, everyone seems to be dying. Who's going to take over? Um, Is this really something we should have signed up for? This new good news that we heard, is this for real? And the first point I want to make today, and uh, I have three points. The first one is this, to cherish godly examples. Cherish godly examples. The author here, he tells them, remember what they have taught you. Remember what they have taught you. Consider their way of life. Was their life 
that it match what they taught you? And just think about, consider what was the outcome of their life? Well, for many, it was martyrdom. For many, they, they paid the highest price, some would say. They, they gave their life for this faith that we proclaim. And the author, in some sense, is saying, before we move any further, church, understand that the people you followed believed in this so much that they gave their very lives for it. And then he says, imitate their faith. That's kind of a strange way of, uh, of saying it, right? How do we imitate something that's abstract? Well, faith is, is not abstract. It's, it's concrete. Faith is sure. And he tells them to imitate. And what this basically means is to, knowing is simply not enough, right? Knowing what Jesus has said, knowing what he has done for you is simply not enough. We must follow what Jesus has said. We must follow what leaders have said and taught us. We must imitate them in their faith. We know the verse really well, James two seventeen. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. William J. Bennett, um, the uh, conservative political pundit, he, he said this recently. We, all of us, but especially the young, need around us individuals who possess a certain nobility, a largeness of soul, and qualities of human experience worth imitating and striving for. I think that's what the author had in mind when he tells them to imitate their faith, to remember your leaders. And then there's the great transitional verse here, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And the church said, amen, amen. Although these godly men that have led you this far, thus far, are passing away, many have died. Jesus Christ, the true head of the church, never forget that. The true head of the church will never pass away. And he will continue to lead you onward. Matthew Henry, Henry, in his commentary, he says, Christ is the same in the Old Testament day as in the gospel day and will be so to his people forever, equally merciful, powerful, and all-sufficient. Still, he fills the hungry, encourages the trembling, and welcomes repenting sinners. Still, he rejects the proud and self-righteous, abhors mere profession, and teaches all whom he saves to love righteousness and to hate iniquity. That's the call today as we come to the scripture. This understanding that Jesus is the same as he was yesterday, as he will be forevermore. He's the same today. That he is speaking, as the author says. Do not refuse him who is speaking. That he's speaking today to us. And he's drawing today. Is he speaking to you? Is he drawing you today? Jesus is the only constant in an evolving world. He's the only constant. That's not just a good thing to tweet and to slap on the back of your car on a bumper sticker and the back of a t-shirt. But it is the bedrock of our faith. Jesus is our only constant forevermore. If there's one thing I've learned in my short 31 years here on earth, it's that man will always fail me. Man will always fail me, whether in deed or 
in death. He's either going to fail me in his shortcomings as a man or a woman, or he's going to fail me in the short time he has here on earth. But Jesus, the eternal high priest, the eternal one, I can bank on. I could put all my chips in on that bed. I could put all my eggs in that Easter basket because Jesus is constant. And this is the Jesus, the author says, that your leaders followed. And they decided he was worth it. It's the same Jesus that you and I follow. It's the same faith that we have. And that's the basis for point number two. Devote yourself to Jesus supremely. Point number one, cherish godly examples. But devote yourself to Jesus supremely. Often there are uh, teachings that are going to creep into the church that are anti-gospel. They're anti-gospel. Are you prepared to devote yourself to Jesus above all else? If we're not careful, we can begin to to devote ourselves to unbiblical and to extra-biblical teachings, and they're so destructive. Here's why. Here's why they're so destructive. is because they, they feel right many of the time. They feel right. They just settle well with us, right? But not forget, our hearts are sinful. Of course, they settle well with us. But that's why we need the Word of God. The Word of God comes in to cut through the fog, to cut through with like a sharp sword all the way through spirit and bone, all the way through marrow. The Word of God comes into the vine and to hit us to where we need it. We must be on guard for these. The church has, has done this over and over and over again. It's, it's no different today in the culture that is so rapidly evolving and changing. It's important for us to know our Bibles, but not just know our Bibles, but to, to follow what our Bibles say. Not just know what it says, but follow. Andrew Peterson is one of my favorite songwriters. He, he writes this song to his son. It's called You'll Find Your Way. And I love these words. It says, I think you're on screen. Go back, go back to the ancient past. Lash your heart to the ancient mast. And hold on, boy, whatever you do to the hope that's taken hold of you. And you'll find your way, you'll find your way. See, it's the ancient, often regarded, antiquated truths of the gospel that will carry you into eternity. And nothing else. It's the grace of God that has saved you and will continue to carry you all the way into eternity. And nothing else. I wonder, have you become bored of these truths? Have these become dull to you? These simple, but not so easy truths. The basic truths of the gospel. I promise you don't understand them as well as you might think that you do. I promise it. You cannot exhaust the truths of the gospel. You cannot dig deep enough and and unearth all of its riches in your short life here on earth. God has something for you today. Verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. 
We'll stop there for a second. How do we know if we're devoted to Jesus? I, I think it's in a question that um, answer it with a question. Um, is your heart established on the free grace of God? Is it established on this? There is nothing that you did or can do to earn his grace. It's freely given to you, Christian. That's rule number one. Simple, but not easy to, to understand and to apply to our lives. A heart, I want to suggest that a heart established on free grace is a defense against a delusion that comes in when we, we start devoting ourselves to these other things in life and we start believing the teachings that infiltrate the church that are anti-gospel. They create a delusion in us and, and a heart established on free grace is a defense against that delusion. For the Jews, this delusion was that they based it on whether they ate, what they ate and what they abstained from, right? They believed that whether they said it explicitly or not, their life showed that um, they could earn God's favor, they could earn righteousness by eating certain foods and abstaining from other ones. And the church here was, they were, they were in conflict because they, they grew up in this tradition and the author's saying, don't believe these don't go back to these strange teachings they're strange because they're they're strange because jesus fulfilled all these things and they're diverse as the bible says because the the range of them is great and just like us is your heart all over the map do you say i love football i love movies i love shopping i love um music music is my god i've heard you know someone say um I love success. I love to feel like a sense of accomplishment. These things strengthen me. Or in Jesus, yeah, maybe on Sundays, is your heart all over the map? Listen, the, wor- the world is, is full of nonchalant Christians who have no devotion to Jesus or the things he taught. The world's full of them. If that's you today, the good news is you have absolutely no chance of being martyred. The bad news is you have nothing to base your salvation on. You have no reason to believe that eternity waits for you in heaven. And that sounds harsh, but it's the theme of the the New Testament, lest we forget. Why? Because you you don't coast your way into heaven. Just like you don't coast your way into becoming martyred. You don't drift that way. You only drift away from that. Those who have been martyred had a grace, strength, and resilience backed by a faith supernaturally given by God. And he can give you this type of focus today that says to your weak devotions in life, no, I have an altar. Read with me here. In verse 10, we have an altar. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is both our altar and sacrifice he's our sacrifice because he's appeased our sin to god for all time 
He's our altar because he is the means by which we partake of that sacrifice and find our righteousness. He's both our altar and our sacrifice. He's done away with the former things. Here we can easily miss what the author is saying because um, we're, we're simply just so removed from the hearers at this time, right? We're so removed from this context. We have to put ourselves in the place of the readers at this time and understand what it meant for them. The majority of them were Hebrew Christians deeply steeped in the traditions of the faith. They would certainly understand the significance of suffering outside the gate and what that meant for them. The author has worked already tirelessly to unpack Jesus' sacrifice and as it relates to the ceremonial sacrifices, so I'm not going to go into detail on that today. Um, You can check out our podcast online uh, for further help on that for previous uh, sermons. But I think with us beginning Holy Week this week and right on the heels of Good Friday, I think it's appropriate for us to unearth a little bit um, the sufferings of Christ. And, and to better understand this, uh, I'm going to read uh, um, um, Fleming Rutledge in her book, The Crucifixion. Uh, she, has, she unpacks this so well. And for the next few minutes, I want to read an excerpt from here. It is formidably difficult to understand the cross today in its original context. After 2,000 years in which it has been domesticated, romanticized, idealized, and misappropriated. Occasionally, a modern interpreter struggling to find some correspondence that can, that can be grasped by people today will compare the cross of Roman times to the American electric chair. This is an inadequate analogy for a number of reasons, as we shall see, but we can learn a few things from it. Imagine revering an electric chair. Imagine using it as the focal point in our churches hanging small replicas around our necks, carrying it aloft in procession and bowing our heads as it passes. The absurdity of this scenario can readily be grasped. But other features in its comparison might help us. For instance, the electric chair, when it was still used, was almost always used for executing the lowest class of criminal, a majority of them black, with no powerful connections or other resources. Similarly, The Romans virtually never used the cross for executing people who had occupied high positions, and never for a Roman citizen. Another point of contact is the contradictory response of revulsion and attraction familiar to anyone who has ever slowed down to look on a wreck on the highway. Even the most fastidious person, when confronted by a photograph of an electric chair, let alone the real one, will experience a disturbing fascination. There have always been people who specialized in coming to cheer and applaud executions when they took place, whether lynchings, hangings, or electrocutions. And that is what undoubtedly happened on Calvary when Jesus was nailed to the cross and left there to die. Crowds of people, then as now, took pleasure in reviling the one who was being put to death. And when they became bored with this pastime, they went safely home to their comforts and gave the victim no further thought. But there are very important differences. Electrocutions were at least theoretically supposed to be humane and quick. Crucifixion as a method of execution was specifically designed to intensify and prolong agony. In this sense, the cross was infinitely more dreadful than the electric chair, odious though the chair was. 
Another difference is that the person to be electrocuted is permitted the dignity of a mask or hood, presumably so that the privilege of the face noted by Susan Sontag would be protected. Most important of all, electrocutions took place indoors, out of public view, with only a few select people permitted to watch. Crucifixion, on the other hand, was supposed to be seen by as many people as possible. The basement resulting from public display was a chief feature of the method, along with the prolonging of agony. It was a form of advertisement or public announcement. This person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more an insect than a human being. The crucified wretch was pinned up like a specimen. Crosses were not placed out in the open for convenience or sanitation, but for maximum public exposure. Crucifixion, as a means of execution in the Roman Empire, had its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. It cannot be said too strongly that was its function. It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with the subversive ideas that crucified persons were not of the same species as either the executioners or the spectators and were therefore not only expendable but also deserving of ritualized extermination. And therefore the mocking and jeering that accompanied crucifixion were not only allowed, they were part of the spectacle and were programmed into it. In a sense, crucifixion was a form of entertainment. Everyone understood that the specific role of the passerby was to exacerbate the dehumanization and degradation of the person who had been thus designated to be a spectacle. And crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhumane impulses that lie within human beings. According to the Christian gospel, the Son of God voluntarily and purposefully absorbed all of that, drawing it into himself. With a deeper understanding, hopefully, in, of the sufferings of Jesus, verse 13 packs a bigger punch to us. Read it with me, verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Go to him. This is the opposite of being led away in verse 9. Go to him. Where is he? He's outside the camp. He's outside the gate. I believe the author, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced the author is speaking to a people that is convicted in their very being on whether they're going to follow after this gospel, after this Jesus, or whether they're going to retract and go back to their comfortable traditions, their predictable routines, their neat ordinances. But Jesus was calling them out just as he's calling you and I out today. Just as he's drawing us out to where he is. He's calling you, he's calling us to a single devotion to him. You see the progression? Go forth from the ceremonial law. Go forth from sin. Go forth from the world. Go forth from even yourself. And go to him. Point number three. 
Give your life to Jesus' gospel. Give your life to Jesus' gospel. Jesus said, Mark 8, 34 through 35, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus uh, today. That's okay. I'm so glad you're here. And maybe this is all foreign to you, to deny yourself, to follow after Jesus. This is the mandate that Christ has. For anyone that would come after him, deny yourself. And don't, don't be mistaken. It's easy to be misled here. This is not something that you just conjure up in yourself and you muster up the strength and do. But God is drawing and moving today. And if he calls and he draws you and he speaks to you, do not refuse him. He will give you the attitude, the perseverance, the mindset, the heart to do so. We use phrases like give oneself, give of yourself, which is like, you know, to act in an unselfish way or uh, I give my whole self to you in marriage. This is, this is your whole being, all of you, right? It's the, the material you, the flesh and the blood and your strength, but it's also the immaterial, the hidden you, the mind, the, the heart and the soul, all of you. I give myself to you. And I fear that when we hear Jesus say a lot of times to deny yourself, we immediately spiritualize it and our minds go immediately to the immaterial as if Jesus wouldn't ask us to deny our physical selves as well. There's a, this church, there's a lie, brothers and sisters, there's a lie in our culture and it's in the church as well, of a lie of self-preservation. The lie of self-preservation. We cannot go to where Jesus is calling us if preserving our own selves is our concern. We cannot. If you think, think about it, think about if you cannot show hospitality to someone, you cannot reach out to someone that needs you if your response to them is based out of fear of what they might do to you. If it's not driven by love for them. And God is calling us out. Jesus is calling us out out of the gate to where self-preservation has no concern. It has no concern. He's in the places we don't instinctively want to go. He's in the places where we are most tempted to hide in our comfort. He's in the place where the bodies were burned before the sacrifice and after the sacrifice, the, the things that represented the sin of man. This was a dirty place. Leviticus 13 tells us that these are, this is the place where the lepers were sent, the unclean, the people that were unfit to be around other, other um, social bodies of people. Leviticus 24 tells us that this is where the blasphemers were sent, the people that were uh, sent out of the gate to, gate to be stoned and executed. And this is where Jesus went. Outside the gate. Outside of the camp. The, Pastor David Platt um, proposes a question. He says, do we create a Jesus that is more respectable than the Jesus of the Gospels? 
Do we create a Jesus that is more respectable than the Jesus of the Bible? And I fear that if we do, if we do that, we'll be following a Jesus that doesn't exist. And we'll, we'll come into our services and we'll sing songs and it won't be to Jesus. It'll be to ourselves. To a Jesus that looks more like you and me. A Jesus that is respectable. This is why being devoted to Jesus is supreme and first. Before you follow after his gospel and where he's going, you have to know him. You can't follow him if you don't know him. You can't follow him if you don't know where he is. And here's our motivation for all this. Our motivation here in verse 14 that we just read. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We seek the city that is to come. The gospel of Jesus tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In verse 11 of 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh, which wage war against your soul. This is what makes the gospel so big and so robust. This right here, understanding that our citizenship is not here on this earth. It's in heaven. It gives the Christian a backbone that keeps you upright in the face of affliction and persecution and, yeah, even danger. Because no matter what comes your way, this momentary affliction is light in comparison to the eternity that awaits you. It's momentary. So when you're tempted to seek comfort in life, how do you fight against it? You fight it with the gospel. You fight it with the gospel that says, this life is not your own. This earth is not your home. No, you've been purchased. You've been bought. You're mine. As the author of Hebrews said just a few verses earlier, what can man do to me? What can man do to me? That's why Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. So we fight it with the gospel, we remind ourselves. Do you wake up in the morning and position yourself for the fight ahead of you? With the words of truth of the gospel. Before you go to sleep at night, do you make it your business to check your heart and where its trust lies? Is that your business? And if you're seeking Jesus, the way to him is straight at him. The way to Jesus is straight at him. He's outside the gate, yes, but there's no obstruction. He's cleared the path for you. He's removed all obstruction for you, and he says, come to me. It's straight at him. You don't have to go around certain obligations and to do certain things and say certain words. You just go to him. You just go to where he is. This is the good news that he offers us, that this grace is free. It's ours in his sacrifice. Will you leave yourself behind? 
Verse 15 and 16. Let's read it together as we close. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This passage, um, it doesn't need much explanation. We cannot offer acceptable worship and praise to God apart from Jesus. It is through Christ that our worship and our praise is acceptable to God. And these are not sacrifices when he says the sacrifices of praise, right? These are not sacrifices for sin. That, that sacrifice was made once and for all, for all time. No, these are sacrifices that are pleasing to God. They reach the Father through Jesus, and they're sacrifices of praise. They're lips that acknowledge Jesus to the world, a profession of faith in him that stirs the complacent and it awakens the sleeping. In this faith, we go forth and infiltrate the world with good and beautiful works. It's this type of sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Let's stand together. The band is going to lead us in a song, and we're going to sing these simple words here that, Oh, come to the altar. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I just want to simply, as we do this, and before we take communion, allow this to be a time of both confession, repentance, and just a, a, a demonstration of devotion. All in the same bit. As you sing the song, where is God stirring you? Where is God moving you? Where is God calling you? Where is he drawing you? Are you inside the gate? Are you there in your comforts, in, in the things that you are, night, are neat and tidy? Inside your religion, inside of the ordinances of the church, but they, they, ha- they don't match with the gospel and Jesus is calling you out of that to believe fully and firmly in the gospel that he has provided the good news that he's provided through his cross. As you understand the sacrifice that he's given, it brings a weight upon you. But as you understand what it purchased you, what it gave you, it brings a lightness to you. That there is both a weight and a gladness met in a moment with the gospel. A weight that you cannot bear, but then you understand that Oh, my heart is overjoyed and glad because Jesus has bore it all for me. And so I run to him with deepest devotion, with eyes fixed on him. There is nothing obstructing your place today, your path forward to Christ. Come to him. Come to the altar, the means by which you partake of this sacrifice and receive the righteousness of God. Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. The call is the same today. Whether you've heard the gospel a thousand, a million times, or this is your first time ever, the call is the same. Come to Jesus. Come to the altar. Let's sing together.